Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm glad to have you here with us. Obviously, you are here, but I am not here uh, at the same time that you are here. Uh, as you're listening to this, uh, my family, uh, Britta, my wife, and uh, Aaron, our daughter, uh, you know, we, we left Graham with my mom at home, and we are in D.C. Uh, checking out some of the sites, and we're here for a wedding of a dear friend of ours. And so it, it's a cool thing to, to be able to go and see kind of the national uh, capital type of sites and the history that comes with our country. And it evokes kind of a national pride in some sense, not in, in a bad way or even you know, a politicized way uh, whatsoever, but just there's a beauty to, to being an American and the freedom that comes with it and the, the kind of the intricacies of the democracy and this experiment that we're all a part of. And so you see this, this I don't know, it just is, it's not impossible not to feel a national pride when visiting places like this. Uh, I, see, I see that same kind of pride you know, at a local level as I've lived for a couple years now in this beautiful place of Northeast Ohio, you know, I see it especially, one, one really great example is when you look at the Browns fans that, you know, just root for that team despite it's just abysmal history. Uh, you know, there, I, I know that I'm a Steelers fan and I know that I'll get booze for that, but I, I'll tell you, I respect Browns fans immensely. And, and someday, someday, when that Super Bowl gets won, there will be a jubilance and a joy the likes of which no one in anywhere in the country has ever seen just because of how long you've been waiting for it, right? These places that we find ourselves, they mean something to us. There's something about place and geography that carries meaning, right? Many of you would say perhaps that you are Stowe proud or Cuyahoga Falls proud or Kent proud or even Cleveland or Akron proud, right? There is, there is a pride that comes with place, and there's a meaningfulness that comes with place. Uh, however, one of the things that I can assure you of is that no matter how much pride you have in your place, your city, your town, your school, or even your beloved Brown sports team, uh, you don't have as much pride and care as, as the people of God did for the city of Jerusalem. Right? What, what the city of Jerusalem meant for the Israelites is something that we can't explain in any kind of modern sense. There's so much more tied up with it than just this idea of national pride. And so we're going to spend this week today looking at Psalm 122, and it talks a lot about Jerusalem. If you remember last week, we started our series on the Psalms of Ascent, and 120 and 121 were the first, right? In 120, the psalmist lamented that he was estranged in this foreign land, right? He was in a place where there was deception and things, and the people weren't acting the way they were supposed to, and he was lamenting the fatigue that he had with that. And then in 121, you know, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. There's the psalmist acknowledging that in the midst of this foreignness and this, this grief of being stuck, you know, he lifts his eyes to the hills and here, here's the providence of God that directs his path, that sets him on the right journey. And so Psalm 121 is kind of the beginning of the pilgrimage, right? 120 is the dissatisfaction with where the psalmist is. And 121 is then the setting out on the pilgrimage, on the journey, on the ascent, as the songs of ascent say. If that's the case, then 122, which we're looking at today, is the rejoicing as the psalmist arrives 
at the gates of Jerusalem. Right? It's, they're, they're, they're coming to the very threshold of the place that they've wanted to go. They're getting ready to walk up the hill, but they're at the gates of Jerusalem. They are ready to enter. They have one foot in the door and they are excited and jubilant. And the psalmist in 122 is expressing that jubilance. And so I would invite you to stand with me as we read together Psalm 122, and then we'll unpack kind of how it works and functions in the lives of us as believers today, slowly by starting back at that culture and working our way all the way forward to the present and the future. Please stand with me and let's, uh, let's hear the word of God together. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, there thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. And for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The psalmist that is listed here, you know, this, it starts with a, a psalm of ascent, and then it lists the author as King David. This is not a definitive thing. We don't know 100% that it's David, but uh, most scholars would agree that it's at least likely. Uh, there was a, a movement uh, to kind of discredit that for a while. There was many that believed that David wasn't the author, but more and more people are starting to think that that was a, a likely scenario. And so we will assume that David wrote this. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting because it would especially be appropriate that David is the author of this psalm concerning the influence that David has had on the city of Jerusalem. Right? The first time we ever hear about Jerusalem as a city is all the way back in Genesis 14. It's when they're talking about the order of Melchizedek. Right? We're introduced to this mysterious king and all we know is he's Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Salam, which is what we think of today as Jerusalem. And so we're, we're introduced to the very first king of Jerusalem, but we don't really know anything else about the place whatsoever. Um, the next thing we find out through, through history, we have these jars that were found in the region that tell us that the Jebusites, uh, roughly around 3500 BC, inhabited the area, the city of Jerusalem, um, way back at that time. But we don't really have the map of Jerusalem. We don't have it on the map as a city of significance until David conquers it. Right? We can read about this in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. David, as he ascends to the throne, David conquers the city of Jerusalem and he establishes it as kind of the central place of God's people. He does it in two ways. He establishes it politically. He builds the palace there and he has all kinds of government buildings and officials and kind of makes it the central hub for, for government among the people of God. But then he also brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Right? It's not in the permanent temple yet. You know, we'll see Solomon build the temple later. But, but David is the one who establishes Jerusalem as this place of influence. And to the Israelites, Jerusalem meant absolutely everything. 
The name itself tells us this. If we dissect the, the, the word Jerusalem, it comes from the Hebrew uh, Yerushalayim. Uh, that's two, two words put together. The first Yeru means they will see. And Shalom, which is where we get Shalahim, is this, this idea of completeness or wholeness. And so the city Jerusalem literally means pointing to wholeness or completion. It meant everything to the people of God, to the Israelites at that time. Here's two illustrations that, that might be helpful for you in looking at this. This is a, the first one is this. It's this old depictive map, uh, and it's in German. It illustrates the way in which the world saw Jerusalem at that time, and, and many uh, today still do as the central place. You can kind of see that, you know, on the bottom you have this, this flower leaf that's Africa. You know, in, 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 the, in the top left you have Europa, which is Europe, and most of the countries that come as part of that. And then you have Asia up to the right. And in the very middle, the little medallion is this, the city of Jerusalem. Here's another image that might be helpful. Uh, this is a painting of Jerusalem by, by a man in Alex Levin, and it shows just the majestic nature of the city. Jerusalem was known as the city on a hill, right? Now imagine significance-wise, maybe New York City to us, but it was also the birthplace and center of God's people over millennia of time. Right? That's the significance of the city of Jerusalem. It means absolutely everything. And so Psalm 122 starts by acknowledging the importance of it. Right? It describes the city as this compacted place to gather. Right? Compacted is, is interesting. The Hebrew word that, that's used for, for compacted or you know, kind of bonded city here comes from, um, comes from the root of, of havar, which means association. And so when it says it's this close-knit or compact or, or bonded or bound together city, it's not talking about, you know, the, the closeness of the houses. You know, a lot of times we think of that as negative. You know, we go to the city and there's like one house stacked on top of another and everybody's living tightly squeezed. You know, you think of the, the, the New York apartment that's $6,000 a month, but it's a studio. Uh, Jerusalem was certainly that way. But the description here in Psalm 22 is not about the closeness geographically or the packedness of the houses, but it's about this, this idea that there is a, a closeness, an association, a unity around the city. The people in Jerusalem are united religiously. Right? The psalmist establishes very early on this whole place as an essential city for the well-being of God's people. Right? It was a stable Jerusalem in David's time. And that meant that there was a stable people of God. The city being stable and God's people being stable were inseparable ideas to the Israelites during that time. And so the psalmist continues to call the people to pray for the peace of the city. Right? We see this in verse 6. Right? Should, this, should this be David? Should it, should it be the author? It's likely written at the outset of the conquering of the city. And so David takes the city and he's, he's stepping foot in it to establish it for the first time. And he's seeing it and where it's located in its majesty and its glory. And the psalm is a psalm of gratitude. It's like, look at this place and what it means. What it means to the people of God, right? And so he calls the people in verse 6 through 9, the remainder of the psalm, to be in prayer for the protection of the city. Right? And so the question for us is, well, what is a psalm of gratitude for Jerusalem and a call to pray for it 
have to do with us? Why, should it, why does this psalm matter to us? If it's a psalm of ascent, which is supposed to prepare us to, to worship God well, well, well how does that, what does that mean? Right? Is this like a political appeal sermon? Are we going to talk, talk about whether we should be supporting Israel today? No. We can have a debate someday, a political debate, about whether or not Israeli support is appropriate or inappropriate. And I, ha I have my opinions on that, but, but I'll tell you this. No matter where you fall on that debate, um, this passage isn't making your point in one direction or the other. This is not a passage that you have to really take it out of context to start to get into a political arena of things, right? If there's an argument in support of, of Israel in the modern day today, it's not coming from this text. It's possible, it could be, but it's not, we're not getting it here. Right? And so nearly all biblical scholars agree that there's really three ways that we can apply Psalm 122 to the daily lives of ourselves as believers today. Right? And the three ways are this. We can apply it literally, we can apply it symbolically, and we can apply it prophetically. Literally, symbolically, and prophetically. And as we seek to apply this psalm of ascent to our own kind of pilgrimage up the mountain of this, 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 this life as the people of God, we'll look at all three of those as we spend the rest of our time together. Right? From a literal standpoint, the, the city of Jerusalem was a brilliant move that in many ways saved God's people. If you recall back to when we were covering the book of Judges, back in the beginning of this year, uh, one of the things that you, you would have noted is that it ends really dark, right? For us to get hope from the book of Judges, we had to go to the book of Ruth and see the little ways in which God was working in small parts of, of, of the area of God's people during the time of the Judges, right? We don't, we don't actually get a happy ending at the end of the book. Instead, what we have at the end of Judges is a civil war among God's people. Right? The tribes are fighting one another. Right? They're taking sides and, and battling and waging war and killing one another in a senseless way. There is strife and anger and malice happening amongst the, the people of God. They are not united as we sometimes think about, like there's God and his people always together. Right? They are split apart. And so David, in all of his wisdom establishes the center of God's people in Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Jerusalem geographically wasn't in any area of any of the tribes. It wasn't on any tribal region land. It was its own separate thing. And so when the, when the people of God from the various tribes would come, there wasn't a single tribe that had ownership of the city of Jerusalem. It was, it was a place for all to come. Right? It was this massive symbol of unity because no one was on the home turf, on the home team, when they came together to Jerusalem. So when the God, people of God from the various tribes and lands would come together in pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they all were arriving there together. There wasn't like, oh, and this is like, the, the tribe of Benjamin is hosting every year because that's where Jerusalem is. No. And so it brought, it brought a unity. Every tribe had a sense of ownership over this area. right? And so it was a brilliant move on the part of David to establish the center of, of God's kingdom at the time right? in, in, in a place that was neutral ground to the, to the warring factions and tribes of that time. 
So it brought unity. Unity was a real key ingredient to the city of Jerusalem. The other thing it brought was, was peace. There was a peace that came. It was a wellspring of peace and justice for the people of God. Right? Verse 5. Their thrones of judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Right? And so we resound with the people of God in history that prayed for this city. More importantly, what it meant for God's people, this bastion of hope and peace. And so we do rejoice. We do heed the call of David from a literal standpoint to rejoice for the city of Jerusalem. For in many ways, it, it saved the people of God at that time. It, it brought unity to the tribes of the Israelites. And it brought a peace in a lot of ways. It's part of what made the rule of David so successful. As, as much as he had shortcomings in personal life, right? he ruled really well. Now, it's not perfect. right? The city of Jerusalem has its faults. As a matter of fact, just, just a few generations later, you're going to see the split happen with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, where the kingdom split and Jerusalem suffers. And, and you know they go and set up an alternate kingdom in another place, and now there's factioning again. And ultimately, you're going to see the city of Jerusalem destroyed, right? As the Babylonians conquer and captivate all of the remainder of God's people. And they go into exile, right? I, I've talked with friends and, and folks who have visited Jerusalem. I haven't had the pleasure yet. But they've put their hands on the stones of the walls that have been rebuilt after those from exile got to go back, right? Jerusalem wasn't perfect. It didn't solve all of God's problems, but it, but it started to. It was something, right? Just like the sacrificial system of God's people in the Old Testament was something. And so we do literally rejoice as David calls us to, and we do pray for Jerusalem as, as, as what it represents to the people of God, even in some ways still today. That doesn't inform our political leanings with, with Israel, Palestine, and, and the various things. But what it does cause us to do is we should pray for the city of Jerusalem. And for it to, again, be a symbol of unity and hope and peace. Right? So that's the literal standpoint. The next place we go is the symbolic interpretation. In a way, Jerusalem, in, in this Psalm 122 isn't just to be taken literally, but the call to pray for it is a symbolic call as well. So what does Jerusalem stand for symbolically? Right. One of the verses that's really helpful here is Hebrews 12. And so let's look together at Hebrews 12. This is 22 through 24 and 28 through 29. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. This is talking about Jerusalem in a way. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Hebrews 12 here is talking about the church that Christ has established. The church that began in the book of Acts and the church that you are sitting in right now and I am virtually in right now. Right? The, the church established is what he's talking about in Hebrews 12 
when he talks about the Mount of Zion and the holy city. And so Jerusalem in scripture isn't just this literal city, but it's a symbolic representation of the church. This psalm ought to be applied to the church of today and throughout history. When he's calling the people to, to, to uphold and push for the unity of the city of Jerusalem. And when he's calling the people to pray fervently and, and care deeply about the city of Jerusalem. It's a call today to pray for the church. The church today serves the same purpose in our world as Jerusalem did to the psalmist of 122, to David when he wrote it. It's the central home of God's people. right? And just like Jerusalem was this neutral ground, so the church is a neutral ground. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for, it's for all believers. Think about the people that, that inhabit even just our church, but, but, but the church in general. Right? The beauty of the church is the uniting of God's people under one proverbial roof. It transcends class and race and nationality and politics and age and political leanings and so much more. The church is this united ground that no single tribe, that no single race, that no single economic class, that no single gender gets to call home but that all of us inhabit. Think about the people that you spend time with in church and then ask yourself honestly, would you be, spe would you be spending time with these people? Would you have ever met these people to spend time with them, with many of them, if it weren't in the context of the local church? Just like Jerusalem was a city that gathered all the tribes together in unity, so the church today is a place that gathers all the tribes, all of the factions, all of the political opinions and leanings, all together under one roof, the holy roof of Jesus Christ, infused with the Holy Spirit, that we might worship him together in spirit and in truth. The church is the light on the hill that Jerusalem was as well. The church is the beacon of hope. Just as Jerusalem stood at the top of a hill and was this light, this light city, so the church is supposed to be the light of the world. Right? It's, this is therefore a psalm of appreciation for the church as a place of true worship. And it's a call to emphasize and to pray for the continued growth and outpouring and blessing of the church. And so we, we literally join David in prayer in his call to pray for Jerusalem but we also symbolically join him as we pray for the church that has in a ways replaced Jerusalem today this sanctuary this space this place we call home is holy to us right not because there's something intrinsically awesome or valuable about this building though I, I love the building that we have but because of what it represents right when you drive by you know that there is hope here at least you should, right? And if we think there's people that are driving by our building that don't see hope, then, well, we, we should have our work cut out for us as God's people, don't we think? Right? So we have the literal way and the symbolic way. The final way that we look at is prophetically, right? Just as the original city of Jerusalem was a foreshadowing of the church today, so the church today is a foreshadowing of, ironically, what Scripture calls the new Jerusalem. 
The interpretation of Psalm 122 comes full circle in Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, we have the description of the new heaven and the new earth, this new holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. And God says things like, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Right? He will be our God, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And then it makes a specific mention of the lack of a temple or church inside of it. So let's read that together. This is Revelation 21, 22 through 25. And I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Ultimately, when we read Psalm 122... It's a psalm of thanks for Jerusalem, the holy city, and a call to pray for and to love and to cultivate it. Ultimately, when we read that psalm, this is what we ought to have in mind. When David saw what Jerusalem had become for God's people, he rejoiced. And then he made an ardent call to pray for and to seek its protection and peace. And likewise, we are called to do this as well. And we're called to do it in two ways. First, We are called to appreciate the gift of God's church and what it means for us in our daily lives. It's a place of freedom. And it's firmly bound together as a place of unity. It's a place of peace and hope from the world standing opposite of the gospel. And we must love it and we must invest in it as the people of God. And we have to cultivate it with great fervor And we have to do it at the sweat of our brow. Sometimes we have to be invested in the church even when it's inconvenient. You know, in in marriage counseling, one of the things I tell people from the very outset is that marriage is, is hard work. Like you're not committing to, it's not just an expression of love when you stand in a wedding ceremony, but it's a commitment to hard work for the rest of your life. In order to cultivate a marriage, it requires an immense amount of effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires laying down your own life for the sake of your life together and your spouse and to lift them up and to hold them up even when they don't deserve it and for them to do likewise. It's hard work. And the church is called the bride of Christ. And so we, as the church, are called to this cultivation, this hard work. We're to treasure the church We're to understand and accept that that Christ gave it to us as a gift because we need it in order to together to walk into the kingdom of God as his bride beautifully adorned. We must do the work of beautiful adorning. We can't shortcut this one. You cannot come to the church and sit in the pew and be a consumer Come in late, you sit in the back and you listen to the sermon and you go out and you feel like you've done your church for the week. That is not how it works. And if that's how you're operating and you feel like there's a stagnancy in your faith, I got news for you. It's because there is. Because you're not cultivating. You're not, you, you come to church, but you're not loving the church. Our job, our calling as God's people is to see the church for what it is, to fall in love with it, and to invest in it and cultivate it. 
That's why we say that like none of the ministries that this church does happen without the people to rise up and do them. Right? We have a few wonderful volunteers right now that are rising up, that are volunteering to, to, to kick off once again after the pandemic, the children's church across the street and to, to, to start up and to see what, what does a new children's ministry look like in a place like this. In some ways, our children's ministry is functioning as if we're a church plant. And there's some, some negative to that, right? The momentum. But there's some positive to that as well. We can kind of start things anew. But there's some volunteers who are mercilessly and tirelessly working. They're at the ready every day. If no kids show up, they're still ready. If one kid shows up, they're still ready. And eventually they pray that two kids show up and then five and then 10 and then 50, right? But, but there's people that are investing so that the church can do its work of peace in the community and in the world in which we find ourselves. That is the call that is on each and every one of us. And so first, I think if you read the psalm, the thing that you should take away is you are called to be an investor and a cultivator in the church of God. And if you're not doing that, you should go home and you should search your soul very deeply today. Because this isn't a place for you to consume. Right? The analogy that, um, that I've used with our leadership over the past few months uh, that keeps kind of coming back is this. And it's, it's not my own, but, but I love it. It's, it's the idea that the church isn't a cruise ship, but a Navy rescue boat. What's the point of a cruise ship? It's to make sure that all the guests on the ship are as comfortable and entertained as possible. Right? A lot of churches operate like that. They try to make everyone in the church as comfortable and entertained as possible. What's your preference? We'll try to make it happen. Right? That's not what the church is. The church is a rescue boat of the Navy. It's an armed forces rescue ship. On that boat, what's the mission of the people that are on that boat? It's not to make them comfortable, right? We don't really care if the people in a, in, a, in a rescue boat are comfortable. The goal of it is to pull as many dying people on board as possible, as quickly as possible. If people are uncomfortable, that's relevant. We know that there are people dying out there, and so we're out in the waters and we're pulling people in. And once we pull somebody in, we don't give them a comfortable meal. We get them, we get them life support, we get them up and running, and then we teach them how to pull other people in themselves. That's the way the church ought to function. That is the role it serves today. And so if you're here and you're coming, if you're a member and a regular attender, if you're a visitor who's been around for a while, your job is rescue operator. You're not a cruise ship sitter or a Bible study attender. You're a rescue operator. Your job is to lean over the boat and pull dying people in. And if it makes you uncomfortable in the process, that's okay. We're fine with that. Right? It's not our goal as leaders to make people uncomfortable, but at the expense of pulling people in, at the expense of sharing the gospel to the world, we care far more that the gospel is shared than that you are comfortable. That's the way the church should be, and you should be a part of it because God calls you to. The second thing that we are to do that we take away from this, is we're called to keep our sights on the coming new holy city. To pray fervently for its arrival. Right? The amount of times that I reference John's words at the end of Revelation when he says, come Lord Jesus, 
Right? You're probably going to get sick of that phrase. It's one of my favorite parts of Scripture because John sees what's coming. He sees the holy city. He has the vision that God is giving him as he's exiled on the island of Patmos. And the only thing he can say is, good Lord, come soon. we got to have this now. He has an anticipation and a prayer for it. And so what David is calling us to do as we pray for the city to be preserved, ultimately, is to call us to pray for the new holy city. Right? For the day where we don't struggle anymore to be the church because the church is all there is. It's this new holy city. Jerusalem will come. The Lord will bring it down from heaven in its perfected form. Not the faulty way that David saw it in all of his glory at that time, but the fullness of glory. And so we pray for the new city as we are the church of today. And we make decisions and plans as a church as if we believe that that holy city is near and coming and we aim for it. We're, we're taking our boat and we're steering it towards that city and we're going full steam. And if that's not the direction you want to go in, you can get off the bus or the boat. Sorry, let a little Jim Collins sneak in there with the bus, right? The church is a rescue ship. And it's on its way to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, where the dwelling place of God is with man. And ultimately, this theme of this psalm is about worship. Because someday when that holy city comes, right, it's about seeing what God has done throughout the history and rejoicing. And when the holy city comes, we are ready and we worship in spirit and in truth. Right? I said that the context of this psalm was the arrival at the gates of Jerusalem. The people who arrived there were rejoicing, yet anticipating. They were overjoyed to experience the peace of the city, the unity, the safety, but they also knew that something more had to be coming. We must be that same way now. We must love the church that God has given us. We must use the church God has given us. We must use it to worship him and ascribe him glory, and we must run it in anticipation of its eventual obsolescence as Christ returns and ushers in the new city. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's how we worship. That's how we move forward as a church. Let us pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you gave David the holy city Jerusalem to be a place of unity for the people of God and to be a foreshadowing of the church of today and the new city of tomorrow. Lord, we praise you that we have this place, the, the, the church, this, this establishment that you have given us to be your holy bride, that we get to be with you, commune with you, experience your grace through the means of grace like communion and baptism, but also through the body of believers as we just get to be together in Christian community to spur each other on, to have encouragement and love and care. We thank you that you love us so much that you give us that gift of the church. And Lord, we anticipate and pray and long for the day when you take the church away because the new city has come. We get to walk with you and talk with you and experience the joy of living in a place where there is pain no more and suffering no more. Thank you for that outpouring of love and grace and mercy. We pray that we might press into it we pray that you would equip us and strengthen us and encourage us and remind us and spur us to live as the church that you have called us to live. That we would make decisions and risk 
in holy ways because we think that you are calling us to go places, that we might be a, a church that prays for the direction we should go and then moves in that direction with, a, with an abandon because we trust you to continue to love us and to fulfill your promises. We love you and we praise you. And all of God's people said, Amen.